Hey, future doctors. Thanks for joining me on Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Ria Mulherker. I'm currently a medicine intern in Philadelphia, and I will be your host today. You might have thought that we did enough with the kidney in season one of Spoonful of Sugar, where we had three entire episodes dedicated to the kidney. We talked about glomerular diseases, AKI, urinalysis, but here we are again with an episode on diuretics. I really think the kidney is the organ that keeps on giving. Seriously, on board questions, on the wards, you'll notice that everyone has something wrong with the kidneys. And some of the most important drugs that we give in the hospital, some of the most common drugs, have so much to do with the kidney. And that is why renal physiology is so important to understand. And so here we are again. Today, I'd like to discuss renal physiology and kind of address diuretics in the context of normal renal structure and physiology. As always, when I go through this topic, I'm going to be asking a lot of questions, and I really hope that you'll take some time to think about the answer, try to say it out loud to yourself, and pause the audio if you need more time to think. I really don't want you to feel bad if you're not getting the questions right. Uh, Some of these are going to be read my mind questions. Don't feel bad if you don't know what I'm talking about, because really, this is a place for everyone to learn more um, and for us to practice what we already know. So with that in mind, a lot of positivity, let's get started on kind of a basic overview of renal physiology. I really want you to just kind of think about the normal structure and function of the kidney. What does the kidney do? So we know that blood goes into the kidney through the renal artery. And that blood gets filtered in the renal cortex and the medulla. And essentially, the stuff that we want to keep goes back through the body through the renal vein. And the stuff that we want to excrete ends up going into the collecting duct and into the larger calyces. And finally, at the renal pelvis, it connects to the ureter. Uh, And that's really the anatomical structure of the kidney. Now, what is the functional unit of the kidney? Do you know? So the functional unit of the kidney is the nephron, okay? And the nephron can kind of be divided into two parts, as I like to think of it. So there's the glomerulus, and then there are the tubules. Now, what happens at the glomerulus? So at the glomerulus, remember, this is where the afferent arteriole enters, and it turns into capillaries, which are surrounded by a structure called the Bowman's capsule. And this is where the filtration happens before blood returns through the efferent arterial. So what does the glomerular filtration barrier look like? There's three main layers that I want you to think about. Do you know what they are? So the first thing that the blood is going to hit is the fenestrated capillary endothelium. And that's formed by the endothelial cells which are lining the blood vessels. The next structure is the basement membrane. And what makes up the basement membrane? So type 4 collagen and heparin sulfate are going to make up the basement membrane um, of that glomerular filtration barrier. And then the final layer are the cells on the other side. And do you know what those cell layers are called? What those cells are called, I mean to say? So these are the podocytes. And remember, they're called podocytes They have that P-O-D stem in there, 
um, which refers to the foot processes. And these foot processes kind of extend and form gaps. And so really the, the function of this filtration barrier is to create both a size barrier as well as a charge barrier. And what do I mean by that? So the size barrier is kind of straightforward to understand. Um, essentially, large structures such as proteins and any kind of cells such as red blood cells are too large and so they're not going to be able to get filtered through this capsule. And there's also a charge barrier. So all three layers of this um, filtration barrier are negatively charged and that prevents other negatively charged molecules such as proteins like albumin from escaping. So really the job of this glomerular filtration barrier, the Bowman's capsule, is to act like a sieve and prevent large things like cells and proteins from escaping. So then what does escape into the tubules? So smaller molecules like water and ions like sodium, potassium, calcium, bicarb, these are all the things that are going to be escaping into the tubules. And then it's the job of the tubules to adjust the reabsorption versus excretion of these molecules. So now let's go through the tubules and kind of think about what happens at each part of the tubules as we travel through the nephron. So the first structure after the Bowman's capsule that we hit is the proximal convoluted tubule. And this is located in the upper cortex of the kidney. So what happens in the proximal tubule? A lot of reabsorption happens. And when you think about the different parts of the kidney, I want you to think about the tonicity of the fluid in the kidney. So in the proximal tubule, what we see is isotonic absorption. So here we reabsorb almost all of our glucose and amino acids. We also reabsorb water as well as sodium, chloride, bicarb, phosphate, potassium, uric acid. The majority of sodium is absorbed here. And I did say that this is isotonic absorption in the proximal tubule. So how do we keep it isotonic if we're basically reabsorbing everything? So the cells of the proximal convoluted tubule are actually going to generate and secrete ammonia, or NH, um, NH3. And that kind of helps the kidney secrete more acid as the ammonia moves along, and it helps keep the fluid here isotonic. Now, in the kidney, there's a lot of different ions. There's a lot of different molecules being absorbed. But remember that the most important function of the kidney is going to be to regulate sodium and water balance, and kind of a side effect of that is acid. So if you're getting lost with all the other ions that I mentioned as I'm going through the kidney, try to focus most on the sodium and the water and the acid. I think those are kind of like the three most important things to focus on, and then everything else kind of is secondary. So that's the proximal tubule. Excellent. Isotonic absorption. What's the next structure we hit in the nephron after the PCT? So then we run into the descending loop of Henle. And again, think about this in the context of renal anatomy. So in the cortex, we have the proximal convoluted tubule coming straight from the glomerulus. And as it becomes the descending loop of Henle, that limb kind of dips down into the medulla. So what happens here as, the, as we take the tubule and go from up in the cortex down the descending loop of Henle into the medulla? What happens to the fluid in the tubules? 
So here, the urine is going to become hypertonic. And why is that? So in the descending loop, we're really only absorbing water. The cells that line the tubule of the descending loop of Henle are impermeable to sodium. So urine becomes more concentrated as it descends from the cortex into the medulla. And this is established kind of by a fine, you know, chemical balance created by both the ascending and descending loop of Henle. But essentially, as the water descends, it's the cells are impermeable to sodium and we're only reabsorbing water. So think of that urine getting more and more concentrated as it descends into the medulla. And then after the descending limb, it's going to go back up towards the cortex via the ascending loop of Henle. So what happens here in the ascending part? It's kind of the opposite. So urine starts to become more hypotonic as it rises back up into the cortex. And it's literally the opposite of the descending. So in the ascending loop, we're impermeable to water and we're only reabsorbing sodium, chloride, and potassium. And there's a special transporter here. It absorbs one molecule of sodium, one molecule of potassium, and two molecules of chloride. So if you think about what the ascending limb does for the loop of Henle, it's essentially creating that high concentration gradient, which is what drives water reabsorption in the descending loop. I know it's confusing to think about, but what I want you to take away about the loop of Henle is that as water comes down through the descending limb, as urine comes down, we're only going to reabsorb the water and make urine hypertonic. And then as we go back up through the ascending limb, we're going to reabsorb sodium, potassium, and chloride and start to make the urine more hypotonic. So where in the kidney do you think urine is least concentrated? Where is it most hypotonic? It's really going to be most hypotonic at the very end of the ascending loop, the thick ascending loop, and the beginning of the distal convoluted tubule. So then let's move on to the next part. What happens in the distal convoluted tubule? So here we continue to reabsorb things. We continue to reabsorb sodium, chloride, and we remain impermeable to water. So we're still hypotonic at this point. Um, but remember that most of the stuff is going to get reabsorbed in the proximal tubule and the descending tubule is kind of less of a contribution. And then finally, we hit the very last structure, which is the collecting tubule. So what happens in the collecting tubule? So here, we're going to reabsorb sodium, but this time in exchange for potassium and hydrogen. And I want you to remember that water is just going to follow sodium because it's trying to, you know, it, it follows the concentration gradient. So when so wherever sodium goes, water follows. And then the other thing I want you to remember is that wherever potassium goes, hydrogen follows. So in the collecting tubule, we're reabsorbing more sodium and water, and we're excreting potassium and hydrogen ions. Now, the kidney gets more complicated because there are a lot of hormones that act in the nephron. And so really quickly, I just want to review four different hormones and what they do in the kidney. So what does angiotensin II do? It's one of the most important ones that acts at the kidney. Think about where it acts and what it does. So the job of angiotensin is to make you hypertensive, right? And that's kind of in the name, the, the tensive part. Angiotensin makes you hypertensive. 
And remember, that happens because the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system gets activated when the kidney perceives decreased blood flow to the macula densa. So what angiotensin 2 does is it acts at the proximal convoluted tubule and it tries to stimulate sodium absorption. And remember, water is going to follow sodium, so it's going to help retain more fluid and make you more hypertensive. A little detail that's important to remember is that angiotensin 2 works at a sodium-hydrogen exchanger. So what ends up happening is sodium gets absorbed, hydrogen gets excreted, and we end up absorbing more bicarb. So the actions of angiotensin 2 are going to cause a contraction alkalosis. And this is something that's important to remember because it can also be a side effect of a lot of the diuretic drugs that we give. Let's talk about the next hormone, aldosterone, which is also part of that same RAS pathway. What does aldosterone do? Aldosterone is going to act on a mineralocorticoid receptor in the collecting tubule. So there's two types of cells in the collecting tubule. There's principal cells and then there's intercalated cells. So in the principal cells, essentially what we get is sodium reabsorption and potassium excretion. And then in the alpha intercalated cells is where the hydrogen ion is going to follow. And remember what I said before, sodium gets reabsorbed, where sodium goes, water goes. And potassium gets excreted, and wherever potassium goes, hydrogen ions go. So we are, aldosterone makes us retain sodium and water, and it makes us lose potassium and hydrogen. The next hormone I want to talk about is ADH, um, or vasopressin. What does ADH do? So ADH is interesting because it only acts on water. ADH binds a V2 receptor also in the collecting tubule, and it actually causes vesicles containing aquaporin channels to go and bind the membrane on the luminal side of the tubule. So when ADH binds these cells, it's going to cause expression of these aquaporin channels, and that is literally a channel for just water to come back in and get absorbed. So Remember that aldosterone and angiotensin are going to affect both sodium and water, and ADH acts just on the water. And then the final hormone I want to discuss doesn't actually influence sodium and water balance, but it affects calcium. What's the hormone I'm thinking of? PTH, or parathyroid hormone. This is another one that's very important in the kidney. So parathyroid hormone, what it does is it blocks phosphate reabsorption in the proximal convoluted tubule, and in the distal convoluted tubule, it promotes calcium reabsorption. Deep breath, guys. That was definitely a lot, and I know we haven't even gotten to the pharmacology yet. But I really think that if you understand renal physiology, then the drugs come pretty easily. It's all about understanding what the functions are of each part of the nephron. And so as we get into this next part of the episode, I'm going to continue to you know, follow the track of the nephron. And we're going to kind of go through it again, but this time we're going to address the diuretics kind of in the order of the pathway from the glomerulus to the collecting duct. So let's start over at the beginning of the nephron um, and you know, start with the proximal convoluted tubule. So what drug, which is the diuretic, acts at the proximal convoluted tubule? Acetazolamide, very good if you remembered that. What's the mechanism of action of acetazolamide? 
So this is a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor, and it acts at the proximal convoluted tubule. Essentially, it causes diuresis of bicarb. When would we use that? When would we want to get rid of bicarb? So if you're alkalotic, it can be used to treat metabolic alkalosis. It's also used to treat glaucoma, altitude sickness, and a condition called pseudotumor cerebri. What are adverse effects of acetazolamide? So it can cause acidosis, but that's kind of a desired effect, right? Because we want to get rid of the bicarb. Um, it can also cause hypokalemia. It can cause formation of calcium phosphate stones. And there's a specific type of allergy that patients can have, in which case we're not supposed to use acetazolamide. Do you know what allergy I'm thinking of? Sulfa allergy. We don't want to use acetazolamide in patients who have sulfa allergy. And unfortunately, a lot of the diuretics are going to cause sulfa allergy. This next one, too. What diuretic is going to act in the loop of Henle? So loop diuretics. Um, loop diuretics are actually going to act in the thick ascending loop of Henle. What are the names of some common loop diuretics? Can you think of any names? So furosemide or Lasix is one of the most common. Uh, the brand name Lasix actually tells us the half-life of furosemide, which is about six hours. Um, there's furosemide, there's bumetanide, there's torsemide. Um, and all of these are going to kind of have oral forms as well as IV forms. What is the mechanism of action of loop diuretics? So it's in the name, right? It acts at the thick ascending loop of Henle. And what happens there? Remember, we absorb ions through that co-transporter. So the co-transporter that brings in sodium, potassium, and two molecules of chloride. So it's going to block this co-transporter. And by blocking absorption of sodium, potassium, and chloride, it's actually going to abolish that hypertonicity or that increased gradient that's created in the medulla. And so that prevents water from being reabsorbed in the descending loop. So it essentially prevents reabsorption of water and it causes diuresis. And remember that these are very, very effective diuretics because so much sodium reabsorption happens in the thick ascending loop. And so as a result, we're going to get more uh, water reabsorption as well. So by blocking that co-transporter system, we are you know, performing very effective diuresis. It's also important to know what happens to calcium as a result of administering loop diuretics. Do you know what, what loop diuretics do to calcium levels? So loop diuretics are actually going to cause you to lose your calcium. And there's a sentence in first aid, I don't want you to forget it. Loops lose calcium. So kind of ingrain that into your mind that loop diuretics are going to make you lose calcium. When would we use loop diuretics? What conditions do we use to treat? Really anything that gives you edema. So remember, these are very effective diuretics, so they're going to help lose fluid very fast. So we give them for patients with heart failure. We give them in patients with cirrhosis um, because cirrhosis can make you retain a lot of fluid. If you have pulmonary edema, for example, patients sometimes will get flash pulmonary edema. Loop diuretics are very good to quickly remove fluid from the body. What are adverse effects of loop diuretics? 
so they're not to be given in patients with sulfa allergy. They can also cause ototoxicity, um, so they can cause deafness. They can cause hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia, basically losing your ions. They can cause metabolic alkalosis. Think about that contraction alkalosis, which we talked about earlier. Uh, they can cause gout. And then these can actually damage the kidney itself and cause something called interstitial nephritis. So we really try to avoid giving these in patients with kidney injury. Is there an equivalent of loop diuretics that we can give to patients who have sulfa allergy? Do you guys know of a drug like that? So the answer is yes, which is why I'm asking the question, but the drug is ethacrinic acid. So ethacrinic acid functions as a loop diuretic, but it doesn't cause sulfa allergy. Why don't we use it regularly though? Why don't we just use ethacrinic acid instead of furosemide, torsemide, and so on? So it can cause worse ototoxicity, uh, which is why we try to give loop diuretics when possible, but if not possible, then we would use ethacrinic acid. Let's continue moving along the kidney. What diuretic is going to act at the distal convoluted tubule? So these drugs are called thiazides. What are the names of some common thiazide diuretics? So hydrochlorothiazide, which has thiazide in the name. Then there's also chlorothalidone and metolazone. Okay, hydrochlorothiazide, sometimes abbreviated HCTZ, chlorothalidone, and metolazone. What is the mechanism of the thiazide diuretics? So as we said, these act at the distal convoluted tubule, and they inhibit sodium chloride absorption kind of in the early distal convoluted tubule. Now remember, less sodium is absorbed in the distal convoluted tubule compared to the loop of Henle, and so these are less effective. They have a smaller natriuretic effect as compared to the loop diuretics. So they're still diuretics, but they are not as effective as the loop diuretics. Um, and what about calcium? What do they do to calcium levels? So these drugs are actually going to increase calcium absorption. I'm not going to get into the mechanism of how this happens, but just remember that loop diuretics make you lose calcium and thiazide diuretics actually increase your calcium absorption. So they have the opposite effect on calcium. And when do we use thiazide diuretics? So remember what I said, they're not as effective diuretics as compared to the loop diuretics. So we really don't use them for uh, patients with edematous states like heart failure, cirrhosis. You're not going to see that. More often, they're used as antihypertensive agents, um, and they're actually very effective antihypertensive agents in certain populations, um, and they're one of the first drugs that we jump to sometimes to treat high blood pressures. What are adverse effects of thiazides? So these can also cause hypokalemia, hyponatremia, metabolic alkalosis, like the loop diuretics. But then they cause, there's a mnemonic in first aid again, which I really love, which is hypergluc, G-L-U-C. They cause hyperglycemia, hyperlipidemia, hyperuricemia, and hypercalcemia. So again, they cause hyperuricemia, and so we really don't want to give them to patients who have gout. They, these can also actually cause a sulfa allergy as well, um, but unfortunately, I don't know of an alternative like ethacrinic acid, which we can use um, 
as a substitute for thiazines. So that is the distal convoluted tubule. And let's finally move on to the very last segment that I want to talk about, which is the cortical collecting tubule. What diuretics act here? So these are the diuretics known as potassium sparing diuretics. And there's actually two kinds. They come in two different flavors. So the first type is aldosterone antagonists. And do you guys know the name of the aldosterone antagonists? So there's spironolactone and eplerinone. And the mechanism is really in the name. They both have that O-N-E ending that rhymes with aldosterone. So spironolactone and eplerinone are the aldosterone antagonists. And then what's the mechanism of the other type of potassium-sparing diuretic? So these ones block the sodium channels in the cortical collecting tubule. And do you guys remember the names of these? Their names are triamterine and amylaride. And these are not very commonly used, the second, the second type. So why are these drugs as a whole? Why are they called potassium-sparing diuretics? What do they do to potassium? So these drugs are not going to cause excretion of potassium. They're actually going to cause reabsorption. So whereas with everything else that we talked about, the loop diuretics, the thiazide diuretics, we saw hypokalemia, with these drugs, we're actually going to see hyperkalemia. Now, when would we want to use these drugs? So if potassium levels are low, for example, if patients have hyperaldosteronemia, we would want to use uh, spironolactone or aplerinone to block aldosterone. Um, and then a big one to remember is spironolactone. It's actually used in conjunction with furosemide to treat hepatic ascites. What are adverse effects of these? The potassium-sparing diuretics. So hyperkalemia. Um, and potassium levels are not something to take lightly because potassium is very important for heart rhythms. And so hyperkalemia can actually be very dangerous and it can cause cardiac arrhythmias. So we really do not uh, want to take hyperkalemia lightly. Now, spironolactone actually has a special side effect that we worry about. Do you guys remember what that is? Spironolactone can cause gynecomastia as well as other anti-androgen effects. Now, sometimes spironolactone is actually used because of the anti-androgen effects. Those are desirable, for example, in patients with polycystic ovarian syndrome. But what if a patient is being treated with spironolactone and the anti-androgen effects are undesired? So let's say you're treating a gentleman and he starts developing gynecomastia. What would you do at that point? You could stop spironolactone and switch him to aplerinone. So excellent job, guys. We survived our journey through the nephron twice. The first time we talked about the physiology of the kidney normally, and the second time we kind of talked about the diuretics and what they do. So my big takeaways from this episode, there's only one kind of diuretic that causes acidosis. And do you remember which one that is? Acetazolamide. It causes excretion of bicarb. And then why do all the other diuretics cause alkalosis? So remember, we talked about the mechanism of contraction alkalosis. When kidney sees less volumes, it causes the macula densa to activate the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. And angiotensin II is going to act at the proximal convoluted tubule, cause sodium-hydrogen ion exchange, 
and bicarb reabsorption. And so that is the mechanism of contraction alkalosis. And the other thing is that whenever potassium levels are low, the sodium-potassium exchanger in the cortical collecting tubule is actually, interestingly, going to exchange sodium for hydrogen ions instead. And so we lose uh, acid that way as well and get paradoxical aciduria. So we're absorbing bicarbon contraction alkalosis and we're releasing um, hydrogen ions. And so we're going to get alkalosis from all the other diuretics. The other important ion that's really important to know is calcium. So what is the effect of loop diuretics on calcium? They're going to cause hypocalcemia because remember, loops lose calcium. And what about the thiazides? What do they do? They cause hypercalcemia. Remember, they cause um, hyperglycemia, hyperlipidemia, hyperuricemia, as well as hypercalcemia. So then which drug would you want to give, loops versus thiazides, in a patient who has calcium phosphate kidney stones? Loop diuretics. Very good because loops lose calcium. Really excellent job, guys. Um, Believe it or not, I'm completely out of questions and I have nothing else to ask you. Uh, This can be a really, really tough topic. For me, it was particularly challenging to get used to the specific drug names and remember important details about the side effects. In this episode, I try to give you some of the most important takeaways about these drugs, but remember that learning anything in medicine takes a lot of practice and repetition. So I encourage you to apply these concepts to practice questions or flashcards, whatever works for you. If it helps, repeat listening to this episode. Uh, Really do whatever it takes to get that practice and repetition to kind of drive these concepts home. Thank you so much for listening. This really concludes our episode. Um, If you found this episode helpful or if you're listening to Spoonful of Sugar and you're liking what we're doing, please follow us, like us, subscribe to our podcast, give us a rating or review. If you have questions, comments, concerns, you can always visit our website at spoonfulofsugar.org and post them under the comments for this episode. And finally, I wish you guys the best of luck with studying. Remember that SOS doesn't always have to be a cry for help. It can also stand for a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. 